Welcome to the American Families of Faith podcast. Hosts Lauren Marks and Dave Dollahite share insights gained from two decades of research interviewing various people about the crossroads of faith and family life. Visit AmericanFamiliesOfFaith.byu.edu to learn more. All right, well, here we go. Uh, this will be fun. Our first ever podcast. Here we are on the last day of maybe the weirdest, hardest year of our lives, 2020. And here we are uh, finally heeding the advice of our younger friends and family members to get with the 21st century, maybe the 20th century, and, and do a podcast. So I'm Dave Dollahite. I'm Lauren Marks. And this is the Families and Faith Podcast, episode number one. Wow. Yeah, we should have had like a party, you know, we should have, you know, clackers for, you know, Christmas and balloons, whatever. But here we go. Here we are. So um, in this podcast, uh, Lauren and I will talk about our now two decades long uh, research process where we've interviewed now getting up close to 700 folks from many faiths, um, various religious backgrounds, and yeah, all eight regions of the country. Yeah. And so we're excited to talk about what we've learned about what we call the nexus of religion and relationships or the crossroads of faith and family life. So who are we when why are we talking about this stuff? Well, uh, hopefully we'll be able to explain that over the next little bit. Uh, there are times I pinch myself and still wonder if all this is real or not, but it's been a fun ride. We have had a really exciting ride over 20 years of talking to super interesting people from all over the place, from all over the place geographically, ethnically, religiously, personality-wise, and we've been to dozens and dozens of experiences at various faith communities, bar mitzvahs, christenings. Uh, all kinds of cool stuff. So we'll we'll talk about all that. So as we start off, we're uh, I wanted to have us talk about some uh, sort of ground rules. We have lots of talks, and we have lots of fun in those talks. And this will be sort of like a little one-on-one, a little game of horse, where we go back and forth with our thoughts. And I remember growing up as a kid, Rob Guidi and I, in all of our horse games. We had to have different sort of house rules. Sure. For, for sure. example, when we played in the garage, if you shot up and over the beam and made it, then that was worth two letters. Or we played that to get the last letter of E, you had two chances. So we had to do a pretty tough shot. So we might go around the back, through the legs, left hand, revert. You, know, you have to come up with something kind of special. So ground rules. What do you think we ought to do for ground rules here? Like, how many rock songs can we reference? How many sports metaphors can we use? How are we going to deal with interrupting each other? What, what do you think we ought to be doing, Lauren? Unlimited on rock references, unlimited on narratives in terms of interruptions, unlimited uh, for me on you, uh, zero you on me. Um, so I don't I, I ever get to interview you. No, I think that's... I mean, to interrupt you. <laughs> hey, you asked me for the ground rules. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I tried and, to establish a fair home You say that advantage. because you know that I'm going to be the one doing the vast majority wow. of the interrupting. So, yes, you're absolutely yeah. right that that should be our rule. I will try to never interrupt you. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Okay, well, maybe it's time to shift gears and talk about the American Families of Faith Project. 
So, Lauren, you're the one that started off our uh, our interviews in this. You, you did the first of our interviews. So, how did you decide to study religion and family, and when you know wh- when and where did that start? For me, I think the origins are certainly in the very positive experience I had with my own family. Even though our situation was always very modest economically, in terms of the things that matter most in life, to to me now relationships, love, faith. I was the equivalent of a silver spoon fed, spoiled, rotten brat. I really was fortunate. And that instilled a love of family at, at an early age. For me, those roots, those roots were never far away. And I began studying psychology when I was going to school in Oregon as, as a freshman. But when I returned, actually when I was serving my mission, I'm sure like you, it was a profound experience for me. I felt like I saw some of the best of situations and some of the worst of situations. And when you're in that impressionable period of early emerging adulthood, which is a period you and I both love where you're making such important decisions, those kinds of decisions were taking place inside me. I had studied psychology, which began to seem more and more individualistic and in some ways insular. I I was more interested, I think, then and now with what happens between people, the relationships, the connections between people, as important as as it is to understand what's going on inside someone, in their mind, I'm fascinated by the connections between folks. And and that led me to change from studying psychology to studying family studies. I transferred from school in Oregon to BYU after my my two-year mission. And I landed in one of your classes that first semester back here. And I loved, uh, loved hearing you talk about Mary, your wife, long before I met her. And I thought, when I get married, I want to I want to feel the same depth of emotion, have the same kind of excitement about my partner as I see in this guy. You and I had the chance that uh, you were kind enough to invite me to join you on a research project. And at that point, you were studying fathers of special needs kids. And as we interviewed fathers who stayed even though it was a very difficult context, and asked them what gave them the strength to stay. Repeatedly, we were told that faith, in almost all cases, had a tremendous amount to do with their reason for staying. And the next thing uh, we knew, we, we, you and I, if memory serves me correctly, decided to pursue that a little more deeply. We did that during my master's degree with you. And when I headed to the University of Delaware to do some doctoral work there, I still had this hunger to look at strong families and challenging times and what pulled them through. I wanted to interview a wider array of fathers and uh, a wonderful woman who came to be a dear friend, Tamara Haraven, asked me, why not interview mothers as well? And I told her, well, you know, in the social science literature, fathers are typically ignored and the focus is on mothers. And so we don't know nearly as much about fathers as we do about mothers. And her response to me was, so you're going to commit the same sampling sin, but in reverse. 
said, no, no. Well, yeah, I guess that is what I'm doing. And uh, Sandra, my wife, told me she's exactly right, you know. And so with those two strong women's voices in my mind, I wanted to interview mothers and fathers, wives and husbands together. Uh, I remember having a conversation with you on the phone. And interestingly, your interests were very, very similar. You had the desire to begin interviewing mothers and you took it a step further and wanted to interview youth, their children as well. At any rate, I started out very, very modest, very small, and just interviewed 12 religiously and racially diverse couples for that dissertation work at the, the University of Delaware. But even though it was only 12 couples, it, it influenced me in a deep way. This was right after uh, 9-11, the terrorist attacks on New York City and Washington, D.C. University of Delaware is located almost equidistant from those two, two, two locales. And so we we're very much in the middle of it. It was a time of turmoil and challenge. And so the faith of these individuals during a challenging time was at the forefront of the interviews. Uh, I learned about how to, to respond to challenging situations. Some wonderful things from those women and men I interviewed, but it gave me a hunger for more. I would leave after doing doctoral work to LSU for 13 years. And while at LSU, I was able to continue a very similar kind of work, interviewing an additional 130 families or so with a dozen different graduate students that I had the blessing of working with during those 13 years. That was my path until about five years ago, which we'll, we'll revisit that another time. But what about you, Dave? I remember, again, having that, that conversation and you were hoping to do interviews in Massachusetts, if memory serves me correctly. Yeah, I was coming up on my first sabbatical. And so I had a chance to head out. I grew up in you know Northern California. We had lived in Minnesota for my doctoral degree. We had lived in North Carolina when I was a professor at University of North Carolina for four and a half years. And so we'd been back in Utah for about six years, seven years. And I um, was hoping to get my family out of Utah to experience some more um, diversity of, of background because Utah is largely LDS. And, and I was you know, really one of my kids at that time are um, seven kids to have an experience uh, somewhere else. So I um, was fortunate to be invited to be a visiting scholar at University of Massachusetts at Amherst. So we went and spent six months there. We lived in a big old farmhouse that was built back in the 17th century. And this was a house uh, owned by a family whose daughter was friends with Emily Dickinson. So mm -hmm. Emily Dickinson, the great American poet presumably spent time in that house. So that was kind of fun. Uh, my daughter, Rachel, who was 18 at the time, was quite excited to think that maybe, you know, one of her literary heroes um, was, uh, you know, was in that home. So, yeah, I was incredibly fortunate to get to interview. Let's see. I think I interviewed 13 or 14 leaders, priests, rabbis, imams, pastors, bishops, and they let me then interview a couple or 
usually one or two families from each of their congregations. I got to interview 25 families from various Christian denominations, a number of Jewish families, a few Muslim families. And uh, as you said, I was... um, And these were exemplary families, correct? Right. The methodology was to uh, interview the leaders, the religious leaders, for about an hour and let them know, you know, we were hoping to uh, interview uh, a family or two from their congregation, some of their, what they consider their strongest families. So they would recommend folks to me. And and I really loved, uh, whenever possible, having one of my kids come to those interviews. So not every interview, but perhaps half of them. Uh, my one of my kids would come with me, and uh, that was really really cool for a number wow. of reasons. A great learning experience for those those kids of mine, and it seemed to relax everyone to have you know one of my kids there, just sort of, especially because you know because their kids were there, and then I invited my kids to come with me to uh, a wide range of services. So I had kids coming with me to services on Friday evenings, uh, Shabbat services on Saturday, Fridays and Saturdays, um, to many different kinds of Christian faiths on Sundays, Seventh-day Adventist Church on Saturday. And so my kids had a chance to get their eyes opened to, um, to many different faiths. It was a wonderful learning experience. They talk about those experiences and, uh, and what they learned. My daughter, Rachel, and I went, uh, drove down to New York from Boston or from Amherst and uh, went to a Hasidic Jewish wedding, went to the headquarters of the Chabad Jewish movement. You know, she bought a headscarf and, and I bought a menorah uh, there in, uh, in Crown Heights. It was a, just a great experience. And then a couple years later, did a summer research experience uh, for seven weeks in Northern California. I did, I think I interviewed another 12 or 13 religious leaders, interviewed, um, let's see, about 20 or so uh, more families. Uh, Same thing, I'd have my kids come with me to services and to interviews. Just had a great experience there. We lived in a in a home in Mill Valley that was one of those homes in the hills that the back of the home sticks out over the hill and has these like 30 foot long stilts holding up the deck of the house. It was really, really interesting. So uh, I interviewed a total of, I think, 55 families, total of 80 teenagers, uh, well, adolescents ranging from about 12 to about 20. So just had a had a tremendous experience, loved it, often felt like if I lived in that area, uh, I would want to be friends with these families. I'd want my kids to hang out with their kids. I'd want to have each you know, each other yes. in, in our homes. Uh, just really learn to love and respect and appreciate these incredibly strong faithful uh, folks from from all different kinds of faith backgrounds. Wonderful. I have felt the same thing many times, feeling a sense of of wanting to to be more like the women and men that we interviewed and and learned from. So, Lauren, why don't we chat for just a couple of minutes about the sample? You know, um, who do we have of, of these now almost 700 folks that we've interviewed you know, what are their backgrounds religiously, ethnically, racially? 
maybe you could just describe a little bit about the folks that we've interviewed. At the point of, of uh, origin, when we began, there was quite a bit known about middle to upper middle class white Christian families in the social science literature. And, and we, we strived intentionally from the outset to branch out and enrich that kind of sample. So we, we have just a little over half of our sample, 51%, that are racial uh, and or ethnic minorities. Uh, we're grateful for that. Uh, these are across the Abrahamic branches of faith, Islam, Judaism. We've, we've interviewed folks from about 20 different Christian denominations as well in depth. As we mentioned earlier, from all eight regions of the United States, We've made our rounds. There are some regional differences, and, and we've tried to include all those regions. There's a variety in terms of economic situation, ranging from very modest circumstances up to quite wealthy. Ultimately, we end up with a, a sample of among these hundreds of families that are regionally and geographically diverse, economically and educationally diverse, racially and ethnically diverse, and religiously diverse, except that they all are moderately to highly committed to the respect of religious faith. One other commonality is that, as you mentioned earlier, these are essentially hand-picked families. They're not drawn at random. These are families whom their clergy, respective clergy, have said, this is, this is as strong of a family as we have. Their relationships appear to be healthy. And that kind of an approach gives us a chance to ask those very strong, even exemplary families what their mojo is. What's, what's the secret? How did you make it to where you're at? And uh, that's a very different approach to take. But uh, we've thought a wise one and a helpful one for those like me in the beginning who are just starting uh, their own families or maybe have not even made marital decisions yet. How great would it be to have collective wisdom from two or three hundred couples telling you how they did it? So what about the criticism that we have received a lot, a, a, a reasonable and fair criticism? Well, yeah, you guys have studied highly religious people. That's a biased, skewed sample wouldn't it be better for you to do random sample and interview people from across levels of commitment to faith? Why did you focus so much on highly religious families? And what about those who aren't that religious? Why don't you go and talk to them? It's a, it's a great question, and I think it's a valid criticism. William James, a favorite of ours, I, I don't know that there's ever been a brighter mind in the social science uh, sciences than William James. But uh, one of the guiding principles that he offered is that if we want to understand something with the greatest possible depth and texture, we should explore hot manifestations of it. Uh, we should let the lukewarm manifestations pass us tranquilly by, was his, his phraseology. And that there's something about folks who are passionate about a topic, whether it's music or arts or, in, in our case, religion and family relationships, 
uh, that they can offer perspectives that are unique and deeply valuable. And so, so to speak, we have drilled a deep mine shaft in ground that, that involves those hot manifestations. I think it's rewarded us richly. With that said, though, there is validity to saying, why not explore some other perspectives as well? And so over the past two years, we have gone out and found exemplary, unaffiliated, religious unaffiliated couples that range from spiritual but not religious all the way to to very firm atheist leanings, but who nevertheless, the wife and husband both say, we have got a good marriage going. They're a strong marriage. And we've learned from them and really look forward in upcoming months to presenting some of their perspectives, uh, both on their own and comparing and contrasting them with other highly religious families. So one of the ways that we have organized our sample of now close to 300 families is We've got folks, uh, about 25 to 30 families across what we call 11 branches of our study. And those branches include Asian Christian, Black Christian, Catholic and Orthodox Christian, Evangelical Christian, Hispanic Christian, Interfaith, Jewish, Latter-day Saint, Mainline Protestant, Muslim, and Affiliate. So eight, uh, sorry, 11 categories of folks and we are really lucky to have had a chance to do a really innovative process of analyzing or you know exploring what folks in those different faith communities how they go about doing their faith in their marriages and family life and we published a book called strength and diverse families of faith and the first 12 podcasts that we're going to do, we're going to take different faith communities from these different branches. So each podcast will center on one of these branches. Probably ought to mention that about 20% of the sample are first generation Americans, our Asian Christian and our Muslim families, Hispanic families have come from various parts of the world and our first generation Americans a number of the interviews were done in uh, languages other than English. Uh, you were fortunate to have a number of students, uh, graduate students, who did some interviews with uh, wonderful folks from all over the world who are, you know, now make America their home. So our American Families of Faith project is, we, we have to be careful. We don't want to exaggerate or, you know, overstate, but it's one of the most large, diverse and unique samples of uh, religious families in the social sciences. And we've had the great fortune over the 20 or so years that we've been doing this research to have published four books and around 100 articles and chapters in scholarly journals and scholarly books. In the last couple or three years, we've branched out to start to write for newspapers, magazines, you know, The Atlantic and, and other publications uh, to try to reach a, a broader audience with uh, information about these families. So why did we decide to do this in-depth two-decade study of families of various faiths? What were we trying to accomplish? In this project, uh, we were trying to, to mine gems from the, the life experience of, of folks in our nation 
and to convey the best of what we learned from them to everyday folks like us who could could take those uh, those gems of wisdom and, and experience and, and apply them and benefit from them to build their own stronger marriages and, and families. And in many ways, we have been strengths-focused uh, throughout this project, hence the, the title, Strengths in Diverse Families of Faith, uh, colon, Understanding Religious Differences. Now, what do you mean strengths-focused as opposed to what? Well, uh, in the social sciences, like in medicine, in the medical model, there tends to be a, a real focus on pathology, on illness, on sickness, on quite frankly, why things go wrong. It, it's been about a decade since we did this, but we took a peek at one point and noted that uh, over a decade or so, the social sciences had produced 10,000 studies approximately on divorce, while there were only about 300 or 3% as many that focused on features of strong marriages and families. Uh, so the, the rationale in many ways behind focusing on strengths is to bring a much needed balance. Of course, understanding pathology is important, but it's also uh, critically important to understand features and origins of strengths and, and health. And we're hoping that, that this book, of course, will will bring some some needed balance to the force, uh, you might say. So, yeah, it's pretty natural to study problems and what causes problems and how to fix problems. You know, we do that in a lot of ways because when problems happen, things can go south quickly, things break apart, things, uh, you know, people, when they get diseased, they die. When they get very unhappy, they might get divorced. When they get really unhappy, they might uh, hurt each other. So there's real value in studying relational problems, relational challenges, relational pathologies. But we wanted to do a little bit more focus on prevention, a little bit more focus on enriching, um, you know, sort of building on, on strengths that exist. Because most couples start off their marriages feeling pretty good about themselves and about the relationship and pretty good about their uh, exciting new life together. And you know, once people have kids, they get pretty excited about you know starting a family and you know, having these cute babies. And, and so what tends to happen is if people aren't careful, if they don't attend to their relationships, if they don't build on their strengths, if they don't keep their relationship strong, it's easy for those relationships to drift apart, to have dysfunctions enter in, and then pretty soon people are unhappy, they're at each other's throats, or they're very distant from each other. And so we wanted to look at strong marriages, and most of the couples that we have interviewed have been married, what, about 20, yeah, about 20, 20 years. years on average. And, um, and so our particular focus was the role that religious lives play, the role that spiritual practices, religious beliefs, faith communities play in helping these couples. You know, for couples who stay married for two decades, uh, obviously some of those might just be kind of uh, unhappy and they're just hanging in there for the kids. But in our case, many of the folks that we interviewed seem to have genuinely 
um, joyful relationships. And, and they had weathered lots of storms, lots of ups and downs. Uh, a number of the folks, I think about 10 or 15% of those we interviewed, had been previously married and, right. and had sure. been divorced. And, and now they're in their second marriages. And, and in many cases, their first marriages were not grounded in any kind of a faith commitment. And they decided to maybe give their faith a, a try. And so now in their second marriages, they're, they're being more serious. So we, we wanted to look at how did religion strengthen relationships? Yes, absolutely. And I think of our, our colleague, Bill Doherty at University of Minnesota saying, perhaps the greatest danger to marriage is everyday living. You know, the good old second law of thermodynamics, entropy, uh, things go from hot to cold. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. You know, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The, the words of, of Yeats there, the, uh, the poet. I think some folks say, man, uh, it's a shame that divorce takes place. And we would, I, I think after studying families as long as, as we have and seeing the context we have, it's, uh, it's something of a miracle that that marriages can make it uh, and, and not just survive somehow, but really thrive and defy that, that law of entropy where there are some marriages that don't just endure, but they seem like a fine wine to improve and get better across time. And those are the kinds of families that we've tried to earmark and uh, with the help of their clergy and and find and and interview and to, to pick their their minds and their hearts for the secrets that, that help them to to play that kind of uh, life out and we're delighted to have the chance to to walk through many of those secrets with you. And um, just for those that are joining us for the first time, uh, we both have degrees in family studies, family life. Um, we teach classes uh, at BYU on marriage and family life, how to have a strong marriage and family. So we are family studies scholars. Um, I have a background in family therapy. Uh, that's Dave has a background in family therapy, and I currently do life coaching. So I work with folks on how to improve their, their own marriage and family life. And so we we're deeply interested in relationships, in marriage and parenting, but we're also deeply interested in religion and particularly we're interested in the crossroads of religion and relationships or the nexus of faith and family life. So we're interested in, uh, yes, families alone and yes, religion alone, but in particular, we like to look at kind of how they influence each other. So tell us about this idea of holy envy and where, where this, you know, we're, we're going to spend the next um, number of podcasts focusing on our sense of holy envy for our friends of various faiths. Where did this idea come from and, and why is it such a, an important and powerful idea? I look forward to talking about both holy envy and also uh, a related idea, the empathy wall. The Berkeley sociologist Arlie Hothschild has, has written about what she calls the empathy wall and says that uh, that the empathy wall is an obstacle to a deep understanding of, of someone else that can make us feel indifferent or, or even hostile to those that hold different beliefs. 
And our, our hope religiously is that we'll be able to, to foster and facilitate a deeper understanding of how persons and families in, in these eight or so different communities, faith communities, uh, live their lives and that we can, can promote a deep respect uh, and holy envy uh, where, where we, we see in someone else that we know deeply uh, attributes and elements that we, we envy in uh, a holy or a righteous kind of way. Uh, we wish we were more like them. And uh, that, that wonderful and rich idea of holy envy comes from uh, our, our late colleague, Krister Stendhal, who I, I know is an intellectual hero of yours, Dave. Um, if you could tell us just a little bit about him and, and the background there. So Krister Stendhal was um, dean of theological seminary at Harvard, and then he was uh, appointed to be the Lutheran Bishop of Stockholm in Sweden, his home country of Sweden. And so he was over the, the Lutheran Church, uh, the Church of Stockholm. And at that time, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was building a temple, um, one of, at that time, probably 20 or so temples throughout the world. And it was an unusual thing for the LDS Church to build this temple right there in Stockholm, Sweden. And Sweden is a Lutheran nation. And here's this little uh, kind of a strange American sect building this temple right in their capital. And it caused a number of, um, of Swedish Lutherans to be um, concerned. And let's just say there was quite a bit of anxiety and uh, uncertainty and some, some hostility, and partly because the press were doing uh, quite a few stories uh, that were reflecting negatively on the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So what impressed many of us Latter-day Saints who've heard this story is that Bishop Stendhal called a press conference, and he explained to the press that he had developed for himself three uh, rules of religious understanding, where he tried to follow these rules in his own uh, interactions with and relationships people of other faiths. And so the the first rule that he developed was that when you're trying to understand another faith, ask adherents of that faith to tell you about that faith rather than asking uh, people who are not a member of that faith or who might even be uh, somehow uh, hostile to that faith. The second rule he tried to live by was to try not to compare the best things about your faith with the worst things about other things. All faiths have positive things and negative things, and our tendency as human beings is to compare the things that are the best in our own faith with the things that are problems in other faiths. And that's just, it's comparing what rotten apples and oranges. It's, it's not fair. You really ought to. So his rule was to compare bests with bests. And then the third rule was holy envy. Why don't you say something about that rule and, and how why it makes such a difference? I, I think in terms of personal resonance for, for me, and I know the same is true for you, Dave, the concept of holy envy, we experienced it uh, in, in a real and deep way with many of the families that we interviewed. Uh, we've, we've interviewed almost 300 to this point. 
the vast majority of those, we interviewed them in their home on their own sacred ground. And these women and men, and in some cases, youth in the family would uh, let us share that sacred ground with them. And they would talk to us about how they had built their family life. And it was, it was hard not to go away from many of those experiences saying how wonderful the Shabbat service within the home can be for many of these Jewish families. I wish I could do something like that in my own home to go away from, from hearing about Ramadan from a Muslim family. See, what a wonderful thing to fast with such dedication and then to take the zakat offering and use that to feed the poor at the end of the Ramadan fast. Is there a way that uh, I could do something similar in my own family, in my own home, in my own marriage? And uh, I think Stendhal would say that is holy envy, folks, that admiration to the point of saying not just that's admirable, but it's so admirable. I wish I could take that wonderful element or essence and integrate it into my own relationships and, and life. And we have intentionally tried to, uh, to honor those three rules of the late Stendhal in our work and in this book as we walk through each of these eight diverse communities and strive to focus on what impressed us and the other uh, research team members that we'll tell you a little bit more about most deeply and profoundly. Yeah, I remember so many times um, sitting with these families in New England and in Northern California and being in their homes. And often they would you know, be very kind and welcoming when when I and often one of my kids would arrive for the interview, they would offer us some food. You know, we would sit at their around their uh, kitchen table or dining room table or in their living room, and and they would um, you know offer us some some refreshment, and then as you said, kind of let us onto their sacred ground, share with us some of their most um, deeply held beliefs, so, some often very profound experiences where they felt like God had answered prayer or had helped them out of a tough time or had guided them to solve some challenge in their marriage or family life or uh, in interviewing the youth. I remember so many times being so impressed with these teenagers that I was talking with that though many of them found themselves in a religious minority in their schools and among their peers, and many of them found themselves doing, often not doing things that other kids did, not listening to the same kind of music or not drinking or smoking or not engaging in sexual relations or not being able to play sports on, on their Sabbath or not watching certain kinds of films. So, you know, sort of the thou shalt nots that many religious communities have. Then also all the thou shalts where they were engaged in doing things that were kind of unusual, maybe reading their scriptures or you know, going to services, doing mission kinds of service. And, and so these kids were often um, different from the kids around them, and they were often quite independent and uh, clear in their identity. And I just had a lot of uh, admiration for these, these young people that I interviewed. 
And I'm thinking of one uh, concrete example. You, know, you mentioned Shabbat, and my wife and I, after learning about Jewish practices on the Shabbat, we tried to incorporate some of those practices in our home. So, for example, our Jewish friends try to make the dinner uh, on Friday evening higher, nicer, a nicer cut of meat than you might have on other days. Everything's elevated. Everything's elevated. Nicer, you know, maybe a nice tablecloth, nice dishes and, and utensils and glasses. And so Mary and I tried to make our Sunday evening dinners just a little nicer, a little more like a, like a nice restaurant meal. So just it was clear to the kids that we valued Sunday evening dinner together in our home we would linger longer around the table and and talk. We, we would read you know, read scripture, in addition to our our you know saying grace. It just tried to make it a little more meaningful, a little more sacred, and and that that over the years, I think was a was a positive thing. I, I think it sent a message to our kids. Another thing um, we really learned from our, our congregational family where. They were a, quite a progressive um, family and, and were very concerned about ethics and care for the poor. And so the father and the, the son would go uh, often together and uh, work in a, a homeless shelter or uh, in a food and care coalition to feed homeless. And so Mary and I talked about that. And with Mary's leadership, we decided that in our family, once a month, we would take our family home evening, our, our weekly gathering, and we would make lunches together as a family. We, we would make 20 uh, bag lunches on Monday night, and then Mary and I would deliver, usually Mary, would deliver them on uh, on Tuesday morning. Uh, or actually, we did it on Sunday evening and delivered it on Monday morning, now that I'm remembering. And, uh, and that was a meaningful thing that our kids felt like uh, we were doing something uh, practical that, that could actually help people. And we, you know, we would sometimes go and work in the Food and Care Coalition in Provo. And, and we think it helped our kids to, to come to f understand that, you know, not everybody had uh, all the nice things that they were enjoying with a home and, and food. Yeah, one of the wonderful elements about holy envy as Stendhal uh, outlines it, I think, is just when it when it bleeds into our behavior, and we actually make those those changes or elevations uh, that are inspired by others that we rub shoulders with and learn from. Some, I think, would would say, well, you're trying to do this deep dive into profound topics like family relationships and and faith and religion, and meld the two together. Can, can you actually do that using the tools of social science? It, is, it, is it possible to, to pull that off and to convey a message with validity, you know, with, uh, with depth? Can you, can you step into the sacred, relational, internal world of somebody else, even if it's just for a little while? Is it possible to do that? The great Sufi mystic Rumi, uh, suggested that it's it's not possible unless you're able to go within someone and see them as they see themselves. I'm going to share a brief quote from Rumi. He said, 
Study me as much as you like. You will not know me, for I differ in a hundred ways from what you see me to be. Put yourself behind my eyes and see as I see myself, for I have chosen to dwell in a place you cannot see. Uh, on, on that same note, uh, I had the, the opportunity to interview a wonderful evangelical Christian man uh, who I will call Joseph. It was one of the longer interviews. Our interviews tend to run a couple of hours, maybe a little bit more. This particular interview was very memorable because it was about four hours long and it took place in a forest in a beautiful wooded area. Uh, Joseph wanted to do the, the interview outside instead of inside. And at the end of this very extended interview, Joseph said to me, and this is drawn from the transcripts, if you'll pardon me for, for uh, reading, I wanna make sure we get his words right. Echoing Rumi in some ways, he says, after talking through all this, I think you know a lot about my faith, and I think you know some things about my family, and maybe some things about how I think faith affects my family. But I'm not sure that you know what faith does in my family. There's something that when a family, as a family, your hearts are pointed together toward the same thing, and it's God, then parenting styles and economics and space and food and disagreements and hassles and joys and celebrations and all that other stuff. It works different. It seems different. It feels different. Our family are all oriented in the same way. Christ is king in our family. He's center. He's what it's all about. But I don't know how to convey to you that our faith informs our relationships and everything about us. I then uh, asked Joseph, so we still have come out of the other side of this interview with you saying that we still haven't captured it all? I mean, if we had another four hours to sit here and talk through this, do you think that you could adequately put it all into words? And then Joseph responded, no. I think if you came and lived with me for six months, you'd have more of an understanding of the way that faith gets played out in everyday life, the texture of life somehow doesn't get fully captured in these questions. But if you lived in it for a while, you'd say, I know what faith means. I don't think that's unique to me. I don't think that I have some kind of weird faith life that nobody can comprehend. But these are big questions, uh, big questions that we were asking then, big questions that we're asking now. And uh, as, as we approach Dave, uh, 300 families now that we've interviewed in depth, 300 families at a couple, couple hours, maybe three hours per. We're talking about collectively thousands of hours. And maybe that's different than living with this family for six months, but uh, we've, we've tried to make a good faith effort to really, as Rumi said, try to see uh, the life of someone else from the inside. And that's, uh, that's a tough journey, isn't it? I, I mean, uh, it takes some preparation and some, some empathy. Any thoughts, any thoughts there? Yeah, you're uh, quoting Rumi. Um, I wanted to, if I can find it, I'm not sure that I'll be able to find it, but, uh, if not, I'll just paraphrase it. He 
went on to say that uh, in talking about getting into someone else's uh, world, he used this interesting you know, kind of metaphor. He said, the moon shines its light from one horizon to another, but whether that moonlight enters your room depends on the size and quality of your windows. So wonderful. There's these folks let us into their homes, into their lives, into their sacred spaces by telling us about how God had worked in their life, how how they felt that religion had made a difference for them. But that that beautiful metaphor, you know, if your window's too small or your window's all smudgy, even though the beautiful moonlight is shining out there and it's available, you can have it, but you're going to have to open yourself up. You're going to have to make sure that your windows are big enough, that your windows are clear enough. So we, over the years that we have analyzed the now, what, 12,000 pages of interview transcripts that we have collected uh, from these you know, 300 families, we have tried to open ourselves up to what they are telling us. We've tried to be, uh, not impose our own views, our own um, limited perspectives. We, we've tried to be very open. And one of the really cool ways that we were very, very fortunate that a number of things came together for us to, to, to end up writing this book on strengths and diverse families of faith was as we finished uh, you know, a, a very in-depth coding, we had a whole bunch of students over a number of semesters do a very in-depth analysis of all these things that we were told by all these great families. And we thought about how best to present that, how to, how to share that with people. And we realized that a graduate class that I was gonna be teaching in the fall of 2017 was a unique setting where we had 15 graduate students, which is a, a large number. Usually we have less than half of that number taking our graduate classes, but for some reason, this cohort of students was a large cohort and they were especially good, uh, bright, motivated, thoughtful uh, graduate students. Um, we did, we counted up that group of 15 graduate students had produced about 50 scholarly articles in working with their various mentors and a couple worked with us, but most worked with other people in our School of Heaven Life here at BYU. And so these these were really uh, unique and terrific set of graduate students. And we thought, wouldn't it be cool to let these graduate students study these data, these interviews that we had done, and then help us write some chapters or first some articles for a, a journal and wouldn't it be cool if we could get a couple of scholars away who are not here at BYU, but who are members of those different faith communities uh, that we had met and worked with in different uh, different contexts over the years? Wouldn't it be great to have our graduate students work with a couple of scholars who are insiders in those various faith communities and put together um, a special issue of a journal? We contacted an editor. Walter Shum, who uh, gave uh, enthusiastic uh, go-ahead to our proposal to put together a special issue of a journal where they give us the whole 200 pages of the journal to write about what we wanted to write about. And so we, we did this really interesting process 
that resulted in this really interesting special issue, which has now been published as uh, as a book. So what was your experience like in, in, in working with our students and our colleagues from various places in the country? One of the fascinating things, there, there's a push in university life today to make learning more student-centered, to not just talk and teach about a given phenomenon in a classroom setting, but to try and help students experience in a hands-on kind of way but, uh, whatever you're, you're striving to convey most deeply. And so the majority, eight or nine of the 11 chapters in this book are led, authored, the first two authors are graduate students themselves. Um, so we've, we've got a young, fresh pair of eyes or two leading the charge. And then we have some wise, seasoned insiders, as you mentioned. This, these are a decorated and impressive lot. Uh, including a rabbi, an ordained minister, past presidents of national and regional academic societies and, and family studies and psychology and political science. Very wide array of folks bringing up the rear, not quite the rear, but the middle. And Dave, you and I bringing up the rear uh, as fifth and sixth authors on many of these pieces. And so we, we built a team. Uh, this is not a scholar in isolation with her or his own thoughts. These are team-produced articles with outsiders and insiders, with younger folks, with older and more mature scholars, with both women and men, with both ethnic minority and white authors. On every piece, we have this kind of blended fusion of authors that I think uh, produces a really rich kaleidoscope as we look at these eight, eight different faith communities, it was a, it was a delight, really, an experience of an academic lifetime. Uh, we, you were talking about Rumi and the moonlight. This was truly a time when uh, stars aligned in in a way that was wondrous. And we were really fortunate to have a group of colleagues around the country, actually around the world. We had one in Saudi Arabia. Uh, who were willing to come on this interesting and unique project. And most of the time when professors do uh, scholarly work, it's their data and their agenda, their kind of you know, research focus, and they want to be the leaders, you know, they want to be the first authors. That they, there's a lot of pressure in universities for professors to uh, to publish their own work and to be the leaders, yes. to get the status and the recognition. But here we had a group of 17, I think, scholars, uh, 17 students and 15 insider experts in, across the eight different faith communities that we that we had. And they were willing to come on and let the graduate students at BYU be the lead authors. And then they provided the reality checks, the, the making sure that what was in the literature review and what was uh, the kind of interpretations of the findings were accurate with them as being insiders. So that we had a couple of African-American Christians in on that article, a couple of Asian Christians in on that article, a couple of Muslims in on that article. So each article was 
as you said, both insider and outsider authored. And that, you know, it's one thing when you're writing about your own group, your own people. It's another thing when you're writing about someone else's group of people. But it's a really cool, as you said, fusion when insiders and outsiders together provide that sort of perspective that you really can only get when you have someone who's in that world, knows those people, knows that community, and then someone on the outside who is curious and, and wants to learn and, and has looked at some data. And then you have this rich conversation between the insiders and the outsiders to produce something that hopefully is meaningful. It, you know, it, it's accurate. It's, it's, a, it's a fair and balanced uh, view of that community. And so we have these eight articles about eight different faith communities written by uh, these diverse sets of authors, and it resulted in some pretty cool findings that we're looking forward to sharing uh, in in future podcasts. Yeah. I, w- I wanted to mention um, one of our colleagues and friends, um, Christian Smith, who's a professor of sociology at University of Notre Dame. He's written a number of influential articles and books. He's written a book uh, about the field of sociology. And he argues that most social sciences, including sociology, tend to have had a mixed record in how they treated religion and how uh, whether they've ignored uh, religion in their field or maybe been suspicious or skeptical of the possible benefits of religion, perhaps in some cases even been somewhat hostile. Uh, you know, Freud and Marx and, and Albert Ellis and other great luminaries in their fields have taken a pretty hostile view of religion. And, you know, there's um, the new atheism, which takes a a pretty negative view about religion. So I wanted to read a a quote from Christian Smith's book in which he talks about how sociology has dealt with religion. He says, an important aspect of American sociology's project is the desire to displace the authority of traditional institutional religion, especially Christianity being the most irrational and oppressive of them all, with the authority of secular, rational, empirical, social science, and secular movements for social and political justice. And then he says, a particular secular sacred project to which American sociology is devoted has blinded and continues to blind the discipline to the ongoing reality and importance of religion as a social fact of political, economic, and cultural consequence. And so we concur with Christian Smith that the social sciences, and and by the way, with a number of other social scientists, Jonathan Haidt being probably the leader of, of, of that other group, who have looked pretty carefully and found that, yeah, the social sciences have not been as open to studying religion and not been as, have not gone as deep as they ought to have gone to understand religion. And in our case, we're interested in the effects of religion on family and marriage and parenting. And so that, that's what we're going to focus on in the next, uh, the next eight podcasts. We will focus on eight different faith communities and how religious beliefs, spiritual practices, 
and faith communities of affected people's marriages and families. In terms of reflexivity or, or personal position of, of a researcher, in our case, both researchers, uh, given the religious identity and, and character of the university at which we both uh, work, Brigham Young University, and, and given our own uh, Latter-day Saint faith, we recognize that uh, you know, many leaders will assume that uh, religious and or political agendas drive our scholarship. And we believe in, in being transparent and, and reflexive. Um, on that note, do we think that healthy ways of being religious can strengthen rela uh, relationships in society? Yes, we, we do. Do we think that harmful ways of being religious can weaken relationships and hurt society? Yes, we do. And in fact, given this observed dualism that religion can both help or harm, uh, do we feel that social science should carefully examine the processes involved in both apparent realities. Again, yes, we do. And in fact, we've we've written on that potence and power of, of religion to help and harm. Um, accordingly, you know, the first aim in our research agenda is to provide empirically based information to help couples and families who are religious to live their respective and chosen faiths in the healthiest ways possible. Uh, ways that will benefit themselves, their children, their grandchildren, uh, their society, while avoiding harmful and damaging expressions. So our goal in these uh, podcasts, like it is in, in all of our work, is to be social scientists who explore what people who are living their faith to the best of their ability tell us. Our, our goal is not to impose our own beliefs, our own perspectives. Our goal is to highlight what we've learned from, from those wonderful people who were willing to let us into their homes, into their lives. So do we have our own perspectives? Of course. Do we have our own ways of living? Of course. But our goal uh, in, in our work is to try to highlight the good things, the interesting things that uh, folks from various faiths are about in their lives. And we look forward to starting that in our next podcast. We, uh, we hope that you'll climb over the empathy wall with us and visit those eight communities on their own side of the wall and their sacred ground. And that like us, you'll come away with some deep respect and holy envy. Will you agree with, with everything that uh, these communities believe and practice? Of course not. Uh, will there be noble, uh, insightful lessons that will inspire you, that will help you want to be a better partner and parent? We believe so. Uh, it's certainly been true for us, uh, hasn't it, Dave? Yeah. Doctors Dave Dollahite and Lauren Marks are both professors in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. The American Families of Faith Project shares research-based ideas about ways of making faith come alive in marriage and family life.